let's pray. God, you are worthy. You are worthy of all our attention, of all our allegiance. You have made us and loved us. You forgive us and sustain and empower us. And I thank you for a group of people who've come to gather. I thank you for people who are watching and listening, who have said you're worthy of our time and attention this morning. And so as we give you our attention, would you speak to us? Would we hear from you today? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. We are starting a new sermon series today, and it is on the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, if you've been in church through your whole life, often come to church, my guess is you probably haven't heard hardly any sermons on Judges. If you are a Bible reader and you actually read the Bible quite a bit, my guess is you haven't spent very much time in Judges. And there's a reason for that. Judges is weird. Judges is crazy. There's parts of the Bible, you know, when I read like the prophets, some of the prophets, they get out there, a revelation, it gets a little out there, and, and there's a few stories scattered there where you, you think, why is this in the Bible? Or what am I supposed to get out of this? That's true of the entire book of Judges. When I, if you just read it through one time, you're kind of like, especially by the time you get to the end, you're like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I think about it. And um, yet, it's there. And I think one of, the, one of the things that's helpful to me, as I've been in Judges for several months now, just feeling like I'm supposed to be in Judges, we're supposed to be in Judges, I think one of the things that's helpful is that part of how God speaks through Judges is just knowing the big picture. So not only are we going to do the strange thing of giving some sermons on Judges, we're going to go through the entire book of Judges for the next three months. You may have heard of Samson. He's kind of Hercules-like guy, long hair, got in trouble with Delilah, that kind of... So that might be... That's, that's in Judges. Or the, you may have heard of Gideon. He laid out a fleece like, God, if it's really you, make the fleece wet and all the ground dry. And then the next day, hey, make the ground wet and the fleece dry. And it's just give me a sign kind of guy. You may have heard of a few things in Judges. But there is some weird stuff in Judges. There's some strange stories in Judges. And we're going to go through it all. And we're going to try to see out of these big pictures, what might God be saying to us out of, out of these stories in light of the whole. So Judges has this as its um, structure. It has two introductions. So it introduces it. We're going to do introduction number one today. And then it almost like starts over and gives a different type of introduction. That's what we'll do next week. Then it tells stories about judges. Now, judges, you know, I think of robe, I think of guilty, not guilty, making a decision. That's not the, the main um, aspect, qualification, functions of judges here. Judges here are heroes. Judges here are for deliverance. They're deliverers. And so there's stories, there um, a number of judges named in the book, but there's six main judges where we actually get to hear more of the stories. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through those judges' stories. And then at the end of the book, there's two final stories. 
If I was just going to say, like, there's a few chapters in the Bible that we just might, let's just, this is too strange, too disturbing, wrong, let's just eliminate it, it would be the end of Judges. But we're going to go through those two stories that are sort of summarizing something about Judges, sort of summarizing something about the state of humanity. And so that's how we're going to end. So that is, that is Judges. That's what we're going to do. So let's start. Let's just get right into it. Chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. It says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is going up first to fight against the Canaanites? Now, in order to understand Judges, we have to understand, we have to, it's helpful to know anyways, how does this fit into the overall story of the Bible? So let me, it's, it's talking about Joshua, after the death of Joshua. That's the period of time this is happening. That's the book of the Bible that comes right before Judges. So here's the deal. Quickly, God in Genesis chooses a man, Abram, Abraham, a man and a woman, Abraham and Sarah, and says, through you, through you, I am going to bless, I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to give you children you're going to have a family. They're going to become a nation. And I want to bless the whole world through you, through your family, through that nation. So Abraham does have a son who does have a son who has 12 sons. And they become 12 tribes and they become a nation. And they become slaves in Egypt. We talked about this last year, the story of Moses leading them out of Egypt. And they're, going to, they're freed now and they're going to move back into the, the land where Abraham had received the promise, and part of the promise wasn't just that he'd be a nation, but that he'd be uh, that they would dwell in this certain land. So they're going to head into that that land. Unfortunately, when they send twelve spies to to look at the land, they come back and they say the land is unbelievable. It's exceedingly good. This is awesome, but the people are huge. The cities are great. The militaries are powerful. There is no way we can do it. So there were two judges and Joshua, or two spies, Joshua was one of them, who said, let's go for it. God's given it to us. And there's 10 who say, no way. And they convince all the people, no way. And so then they wander in the desert for 40 years. And the only people of that generation who were able to go into the land are Joshua and Caleb. In the book of Joshua, they start driving people out of the land. Now, Here's a little aside that I'll probably need to say a few times. Part of, part of the stories in leading up to Joshua, in Joshua especially, and in Judges, it's hard for me to reconcile. It seems that God's saying, go displace this, these people, kill these people that live there so you can live there. Now that, that doesn't really strike me as part of the heart of God when I read the overall message of the Bible. And yet that seems to be there. So I will say I've done some reading, thinking, reflecting on this over the years, and there are some explanations that people give for what, why, how could this be that God would do this? And most of them I find not quite satisfying. Um, I don't really totally understand. This is something that, that I struggle with, to be honest. Why, why almost it feels like genocide. So let me just say a few things. First of all, not everything we're going to read in Judges and what they do, even the people of God do, is actually from God. 
Okay, so the, a lot of it just isn't, isn't God. But there are some stories, and there's this overall idea of drive the people out of the land so that you can take possession of it. That seems to, that is coming from God. So, here are some aspects that I think could be helpful for us. One, the vision is for the people of God to be a blessing to all nations. The vision is come, establish yourselves in this land. You need a space, you need a location. Establish yourselves in this land and then live differently than everyone else because the way everyone else is living is violent, is, is boundarylessness, is, is not good. There's evil. And so you're going you're gonna to have it look different. And number two, the opposite would not be good. Just to allow things to happen, unrestrained evil would not be good. In the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, I'm thinking about the Psalms, the prayers of God. There is a lot about God's judgments. There's a lot about asking God to judge. Now, when we hear, maybe I'm speaking too much for me, when I hear judge, I don't judge me. Judge seems negative, so don't judge me. I don't want to be judged. That sounds bad and scary. So judge has a negative connotation. In the Psalms, it has a po mostly a positive connotation because it's saying, don't let the rich keep ripping off the poor and not do anything about it. Don't let the arrogant who don't even believe in you come and take over the world and make it bad and then you don't even do anything about it. Judge, do something about it. So unrestrained evil isn't good. That is not to say that genocide is, is okay. I'm not saying that. But just there is some sense of trying to get rid of evil so you can establish what is good, which would be a blessing for people because just allowing evil to run rampant wouldn't be good. Okay. And then, um, here's, here's my, my point I want to mostly emphasize when it comes to this issue of what is this about? What is clear to me, I am a follower of Jesus. Jesus is the clearest revelation of who God is and what his heart is like. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being, it says in Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus shows us, and he says, come follow me. And there is nothing in Jesus that would endorse going and carpet bombing people. It's just not there. It's not in his followers in the rest of the New Testament. So God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Yes. He's the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yes. What's clearest to us, we aren't, like there, given any instructions, take over the land, do this. Our instructions are to follow Jesus, to be the light of the world. So that, all that said... There are helpful metaphors in our spiritual life. They are supposed to take hold of God's promises. They are supposed to drive out evil. They are supposed to be obedient to God. And those are things that we can apply to our lives from the book of Judges. Okay. Sorry. Had to get to that. So now we're back to Joshua. It says, Judges starts after the death of Joshua. Now, here is how Joshua ended. This is the end of Joshua's life. There has been success. They have taken over some of the land. They have settled. Some of the tribes have found their homes. They have been successful. Joshua has remained whole, wholehearted. 
before him. And here's the very end of Joshua. Joshua is giving a speech to the people. And he says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether, you will, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We will be allegiant, loyal, faithful to the Lord. It just dawned on me today. I've had this idea of naming the series You Be the Judge for months. It just dawned on me this morning that Joshua is saying, you know, choose for yourselves. You be the judge. Which is better? To serve, to live like the peoples all around us or the peoples that are ancestors or to live wholeheartedly for God. You be the judge. What's better? Me, I'm saying I'm living for God all the way. Me, my household, we're living for God all the way. And the people respond, we will serve the Lord. And he says, no, no, really, wait. You, you understand that you have to get rid of your gods, that you don't just live like everyone else, that you are focused on him. You understand that there's consequences if you, if you do this, that it's hard to do. And they said, no, we will serve the Lord. And he says, now, if you serve the Lord, God be your witness. Are you really going to serve the Lord today? I'm, I'm asking you, are you really going to serve the Lord? And he's calling it down. And the third time it says, we will serve the Lord. They're all in with the Lord. We, whatever it takes, we will serve the Lord. However hard it is, that is where Joshua ends. Now, we're going to cover chapter 1 of Judges and the first five verses, which is 38 verses, and the first five verses of chapter 2, 43 verses. So far, we've made it through five words. So we're, we're going to have to pick up the pace a little bit for the rest of, of Judges, and we will. But I think it's important to understand this is where Judges starts. Judges starts with the people. Actually, Adam, can you pull up the slide of the four, four things? Here's a summary of where Joshua ends and Judges starts. They people have been working together. It's 12 tribes. They're all getting different parts of the land. They could all be like, I need to get my, my part of the land I'm not going to worry about the other people in, but they actually work together. Some leave behind some people, their families with some guards, and they go and help them before they resettle. They are working together. They are making progress. They are taking the promises. They are driving out evil symbolically. They are wholeheartedly devoted to God. They are following the law, God's word, God's ways. That's where Judges starts after the death of Joshua. Now where does it go? Back to verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up to first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. They're working together. I point this out because that may not be the case very often the rest of the book. Here we go. Verse 4, when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. 
It was there that they found Adonibazek and fought against him, putting to the rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonibazek fled, but they chased him and caught him and, of course, cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonibazek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Okay, first time of a little, we get a little gore. Gore will keep coming. Cutting off thumbs and toes. There's a point being made in this, though. And here's the point. What they did to him might seem kind of bad. They cut off his toes and big thumbs. He's done it to 70 people. So if there are 70 groups of people, probably not whole nations or countries, but with kings, groups of people with kings, he's a powerful guy if he's got 70 of them that he's defeated. And yet the Lord was with them and they were able to stop him. Then the other thing is, he himself says, yeah, I deserve this. This is what I've done. Just an aside, which we don't really have time for. But, but just so you know, back in those days, this is how it worked. If you cut off my thumb, then I'd cut off both your thumbs. And if somebody cut off both your thumbs, then you cut off both their hands. And then if someone's hands got cut off, then you cut off the next person's legs. And then eventually you kill them. And if you kill my brother, then I'm going to kill your family. And if you've killed my family, I'm going to tear down and burn your village. And that was, the, that was what was seen as honorable as normal. Escalating conflict. God comes in and he says the law and he says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If someone's done a punishment, then you don't escalate it. You keep it right there. So barbaric Yes, but actually God's law was, was putting, like, minimizing the violence. Got to keep going. Verse 9, okay, so verses 9 and 10, basically what they're saying is now, they're going to go up, the, the people of Judah, they're going to try to get in the hills, they're going to try to get in the foothills, they're going to take over this land. Verse 12, and Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother took it, so Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have been given the, me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Okay. Out of all that we're going to read, it just talks in big, broad generalities about what's happening. But here, for a few verses, it gives specific characters. Caleb, who I've already mentioned, Caleb is the one who was the other person besides Joshua, who went into the land and said, we can do it. And, and he was faithful. He is a leader. He is loyal. He is, he is symbolically just uh, all the way for God. And he says, we're going to take this land, and if someone will lead and take it, they can have my daughter. And Othniel does it. Now, in our time, that just feels like, gee, you just, you're treating her like property, like, oh, I can give my daughter to whoever I want. Well, that, that was the norm back then. You know what wasn't normal back then? For a woman, Aksa, to be viewed by men as having initiative and competence and more strength than the men. And that's actually how she's portrayed here. She isn't just at the mercy. She's the one who says, you know what? Let's ask for this land, which is dry land. And so then she asks her father, can I have the springs? And he gives it to her. Anyway, there's a Charles Spurgeon, probably one of the greatest, most widely believed to be one of the greatest preachers 
of all time in the English-speaking world, gives a whole sermon on how we can learn about prayer just by looking at these few verses about what AXA does. There's just all kinds of things there, which we're not going to touch right now. But let me, let me read a few, little bit more, and then I'm going to summarize. We're going to be at the halfway point. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of the Palms with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Eret. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zeveth, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza, Eshkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. Here's the summary of where we're at by the time we get to verse 18. Where we're at is you, get, you have a picture of a marriage between Othniel and Aksa where two people are devoted to the Lord. That is not going to be always the case as we move forward. There is blessing on the land. There is blessing on the families. They are continuing to drive out and to take hold of promises. It is a continuation of what's been happening in Joshua. Let's go on. Verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from their plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, and who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites lived there with the Benjamites. Okay, all of a sudden, now, by the way, Judges is very subtle. It's very subtle. But we have seen, like, good, they're taking them out, things are happening, the things are working like they're supposed to, things were lurking like they were at the end of Joshua, and now all of a sudden, but they, didn't, they couldn't drive out them. They couldn't just drive with them. Just a little aside. Oh, and by the way, the Benjamins couldn't drive them out. We keep going. Verse 22. Now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Lutz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Lutz, which, which is its name to this day. Okay, here's another little story just kind of stuck in there that when I read it, I just read right through. Okay, something happened. But here's what we're supposed to, here's what we're supposed to see if we're people who are kind of do, devoted to the, the law or the book of the Lord or back in the, in the old times. Here's what we're supposed to see. We're supposed to see, this sounds familiar to me. There's someone who had insider information about a city, who helped God's people take the city. First, an, an agreement was made, and then the people took the city. Where else has this happened? Where, where have I heard this story before? Well, in Joshua, before they're going to go to their first city, they're going to take on the, the big city, Jericho, big walls, impenetrable, the, the hardest city to take. So they spent, send spies in there, and when the spies get in there, they, they meet a harlot, Rahab. And Rahab agrees to help them. They say, if you agree to help us, we will spare your family. Then they take the city, and her family is spared, and she goes and lives among the Israelites. And, and Joshua says at the end, no one will ever rebuild this city. Cursed be anyone who rebuilds this city. So very similar. They meet a man. He helps him out. He has inside information. Agreements had. They spare his, his family, except... Then he goes, he doesn't live among the Israelites. He doesn't become like them. He goes and lives with the Hittites. And then he does rebuild a city. 
And he calls it the same name as the other city because they're going to live the same way as the other city. That's something we're supposed to pay attention to. I'll come back to it. The last 10 verses, I'm not going to read. I'm just going to share what happens. It's very repetitive. It's basically going to say, now Manasseh, they went and they kind of took over some things, but they didn't, they didn't push out everybody and they drove them to forced labor. And then Ephraim, they drove out some people, this tribe of Ephraim, but then they had people living among them. And then, and then you get to Zebulon and they, they were able to drive out a lot of people, but not all of them. And they had them to forced labor. And then the Asherites, they, were, they just lived among them. And then the, the Naphtalites, they drove out some, had them in forced labor. And then the Danites, the Danites, they didn't even drive them out. The Amorites, the people that were already living there, they were just too strong. And so they just kind of combined themselves to a little spot, not the best spot. But eventually some of the other tribes helped with the Amorites. That's the summary. So what is it saying? Adam, if you can bring up that other slide list for me. In Joshua, over and over again, it's how they drove them out. They drove them out. They drove them out. Then it's just, well, they didn't just drive them all out there, but they put them to forced labor. Then they get sprinkled in there. Well, they just lived among each other. And then you get to like they're confined by them. And no longer is the trajectory going where it was going with Joshua. Why is that? Why is that happening? Last verses of today. Chapter 2, verse 1. Someone comes on the scene like totally unexpected, totally unannounced, no transition to set it up, no explanation before or after, but here it is. The angel of the Lord shows up, the messenger of the Lord. He went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochum. I think it means something like weeping. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So, it starts with, angel comes down from Gilgal. What's Gilgal? Again, if people that really studied this stuff would remember, oh, Gilgal, you know the other place Gilgal was? Before they went to Jericho, before they started taking the land, they stopped in Gilgal and they consecrated themselves to the Lord. They said, we are set apart for the Lord, we're all in for the Lord. Really, all the men got circumcised there. I don't understand how that has to do with consecrating, but it's sure showing you're all in if all your men are going to get circumcised. So, but anyway, they're consecrated to the Lord. They're going all in before they went to the land. So symbolically, this is the part where we say, we will serve the Lord all the way. No other gods. We're not going to live like the other people's leaders. We're going to follow the Lord at Gilgal. And the angel of the Lord comes to Gilgal and comes down from there and says, remember that? Remember when we said, are you sure? Yes, I am. I am sure. I, that, I, that is what I think. Should, we will serve the Lord. You're not doing that. Instead of you influencing the peoples around you for good, you are becoming like them. That's what's happening. It's easy to read all of this and be like, wow, that was fast. The book of Judges covers 400 years. 
You know, the U.S. hasn't existed for 250 years as a nation. We read it really quickly through, but this is happening over time. And what the first introduction of Judges says is the trajectory went from where it was supposed to go to little compromises, little compromises. So instead of having someone come who's helped them out and say, now you become one of us, he sets up the city, they continue, and they become like him. Now, what is any of this? How is any of this relevant to us? I did a pretty good job from beginning right around Christmas, right before Christmas, until some point this week of really minimizing my news intake. I'm a poli-sci major. I think it's important for me to know what's going on in the world, but I watched very little news. I read much less articles than normal. Until Wednesday when someone alerted me to, do you know what's going on in the, in the Capitol? And then I took a lot in. I took a lot in. For the next couple days, I took a lot in. And I noticed that up until that point, I just felt lighter when I wasn't taking a lot of news in. And that really went away when I started taking in. And I started getting agitated. And then I see what people are posting. And I see one group taking the situation and saying how the other group is hypocrites, and then the other group taking the exact same situation and showing how the other group is hypocrites. And, and it is, you know, it's escalating, and I am getting ticked off. And here's what I realize. Instead of me becoming a person who is wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, and choosing to be like him, I'm just I'm having debates with my mind about somebody who would say this. I'm thinking of why these people are stupid. I'm, I mean, I'm sad, and I'm angry, and all that. And I'm not playing my part to help influence what the rest of the world is like. Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not murder. You know, I'm going to look at things in Judges. We're going to talk about things in Judges and be like, I'm not really tempted to do that. I mean, not for real. I'm not going to cut somebody up. It's not, I haven't done it yet. Doubt I'm ever going to do it. Hope I never do it. But Jesus said, I tell you, whoever is angry, continues to live in anger with their brother and sister, is a murderer. And Jesus says, if you have contempt for other people, if you have contempt for them, and here's the, here's the sign, and Jesus uses a bad word, we just translate it fool, because we wouldn't think Jesus would ever use a bad word. He says, if you start cursing about other people, like in your head, you got the bad words coming when you're thinking about other people, like the, the bad language is a sign of contempt. He says, when you start having that kind of contempt, you're in danger of hell. That's not coming from Jesus. That's coming from hell. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus says, you've heard it say, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I tell you, someone hits you like that, give them the other one. In the last year or two, I see a lot of Christians who don't think that exists in the Bible. All 
our rights, we're right, we're... And then what happens to me? I don't do that except for on Sunday to pretend I'm somebody else. But inside, I get angry. Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies, bless those that persecute you. How you talk about them. We have an opportunity to be people who respond differently than what's in the atmosphere. It's in the atmosphere, in the spirit realm. It even put politics aside, just with all that's happening because of the coronavirus and we all have to wear masks and it's just agitation. And followers of Jesus can say, God, help me to not to be a person who lives with love who remembers what you've done for me, who takes hold of your promises and is different than everyone else. So when I started thinking about this week, because by the way, Judges ends in civil war. So like, well, that's an interesting week to start the series on Judges. It ends in civil war. And so I'm thinking, okay, the trajectory. But here's what I've, realized. Today's sermon starts with Joshua. And when Joshua was a young man, everyone was going a different direction. Not Moses, not Caleb, maybe there aren't a few others. Everyone's going a different direction that he was connected to. And then they were surrounded by people who were their enemies who were really going a different direction. And Joshua had the kind of heart that said, I will serve the Lord. If no one else does, I will serve the Lord. I will live his way. And by the time Joshua died, decades later, there was a whole group of people who said, we will serve the Lord. And they did. Next week, when we get to the second introduction, we're going to see it started to shift when a new generation came on. And that says to me, we have the opportunity to be a generation that ushers something else in that is different than what seems to be coming at us that what we get tempted to be part of. We have the opportunity to live like Jesus and show the world what Jesus is like. Even if it feels oppressive and provoking and all of that, we have the opportunity to say, Jesus could do it and he will help us do it. So you and I can be the judge of whether we want to go in on that or not. Do we want to live differently than feels so natural, live differently than the spirit that's coming against us or operating around us, and do we want to live like Jesus? Let's pray. I have no idea... Jesus, how you were able to stand against the current coming at you, against the norms that were operating around you. But you did. You are faithful and true. And you say, if we come to you, you will give us your spirit. That it's because of your death, your resurrection, because of your faithfulness, that we can be different.
that we can be the light of the world. So we ask that you'd have mercy on our nation. And we ask that you'd help us, instead of being people who quickly uh, find what's wrong in others, to be people who bless, to be people who encourage, to be people who are kind and not snarky, to be people who don't post what we're tempted to post if it's going to be unhelpful. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. And we pray that you would do things that only you could do. Driving out evil from among us, from even within us. And replacing it with good, with life, with love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.